through. This is the story of me. In late 2019, I sold a business that I'd founded and loved. I'm a publicist, and I've spent the best part of 30 years telling stories for clients all over the world. I sold the first life insurance policy to protect against Dalek invasion. I launched a farm built in London's underground tunnels. I announced a space funerals business. I've made silk purses out of countless sow's ears. I've won awards, hobnobbed with stars, and helped plenty of them out of crises. For 30 years, I've lived in the UK where beaches are stony, people wear suits while walking on them, workers spend half their disposable income on coffee, weeds are strangely beautiful, the walls of houses are hard, calling up company can take several hours of listening to horrible music before they hang up on you. Pop stars seem to have their tongues glued to the roofs of their mouths. More pets than people have private health cover. And deliveries can arrive a day after they've been ordered. Class still decides most things in Britain, and the Prime Minister, not qualified but willing to have a go, cuts his own hair in the dark. Months after the sale of my business, I was on garden leave and I found myself back in Australia, the country I'd grown up in and left in the mid-1980s. Suddenly a strange virus hit and most of the rest of the world joined me in putting their out-of-office messages on. I managed to get back to the UK some months later but felt restless. So I decided to change everything and moved to the opposite side of the world and live in a community in the middle of nowhere that I didn't know. I left behind family, friends and familiarity. Welcome to Polar Opposites. Episode one, Undercoat. So I'm going to have a go at doing a podcast, and it'll be about several things. How it feels to re-emigrate to the country you grew up in more than 30 years later. What it's like to trade city for country, access for remoteness, company for solitude, wants for needs, uh, some certainties for paralysing levels of uncertainty. It'll be about what very small town life is like. There are 400 people here. What to do with this wooden whale of a house? Well, it's actually a bank building built in the 1850s for the gold rush, but it's been a supermarket, a general store, it's been a barber shop and various other things. Setting aside what I might do with it next. It'll be about what I'm learning to do because I have to. Um, think of Mark Watney on Mars growing potatoes and you get the, you get the vibe. There'll be some bits I've written, some chats with new friends and old. There'll be some lists, a bit of history, and exciting news about my latest junk shop finds. Um, I am a magpie, and I am setting up a museum here, um, which is unashamedly about things that I am interested in. Uh, if anybody else is interested, <laughs> remains to be seen. Um, but, you know, we'll put, we'll put the cost and the theory to the test. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it, and please... Tell me if you do, and tell me if you don't. Uh, I'm going to keep going with it for a while, and let's see how it goes. Right, let's get on with it. 
few things I've noticed about Tasmania. On small propellant flights to Tasmania, the passenger sitting by the emergency exit, who is designated to open it in the event of an emergency, will look unsettlingly like the person depicted on the safety card. He will study his instructions with a level of care that implies imminent utility. He will also be reading a book called The Terror of Living. Tasmanian place names put Derby in Dorset and Launceston north of it. Norwich is below the town of Cornwall. The Wye River has a second sign that reads, Because Bigger Than Creek. It is possible to fall in some sort of love with a Toyota Hiace. Tasmania can look like a coolish day in Barbados, prehistoric times, the high plains of Wyoming, a collage of weather graphics. Tasmanian vineyards are moving further south every year. Most natural things look like they did before the world got in a bad way. Rocky bays are visibly full of giant schools of fish. Rivers running through towns are as clear as liquid glass. Mountains aren't huge, but they brew beautiful little storms above their heads. The wildlife is interesting and relaxed. It's a country that doesn't need disnifying. Tailgating is a national sport. Most roads have what they call adverse camber in the UK and no signs to say so. Driving can feel like sailing. The roads that snake down mountains to the coast on the eastern side are really only one lane but they have a line in the middle to denote two-way for reassurance. Google Maps is an unreliable guide and can lead you down corrugated, potholed logging tracks with no phone reception and big dark animals with reflective eyes. These tracks twist and turn for many hours in the dark. Sadly, Small marsupials aren't great at crossing roads. Crows grow large in Tasmania. Sheepdogs chasing rabbits down the middle of busy highways are unremarkable. Mosquitoes are scarce, large, grey and slow. Photographers lament isn't necessary in Tasmania. There are always 15 things at least as beautiful to photograph just around the corner. Small propellant planes to Hobart will suddenly move quite a long way in every direction just before landing. Most tourist attractions, truffle farms, antique shops, specialist museums, are closed by mid-April. The only ones open are the ones that have forgotten to lock up. Powered camping pitches with en-suites are a great innovation. Estate agents are pretty upbeat about the prospects and the cost of rejuvenating a rotten hardwood floor. They call this sort of thing finishing touches. When you write to a council with a list of 20 complicated questions about a property, someone called Maria will call you back within minutes with all the answers. If you miss the call and phone back the main council number and ask for Maria, no surname, They'll say, is that Hamish? And put you through. 
Councils have lovely names, like Break a Day. There's a ferry to Tasmania as well as flights. It's easy enough to put a car on the ferry there, but the next available return is in six weeks. Never mind. Here's a bit more about the town. In its heyday, there were a few thousand people living here, and now it's wilted back to about 400. There's a small supermarket and a coffee shop, which are open when the owner isn't playing golf. Now, there's a small takeaway, which opened a few weeks ago with a neon sign that just says food. There's a neighborhood center that has a coffee morning every Wednesday and hosts all sorts of things from book groups to the local history society. There's a post office, a hidden self-serve petrol station, a mechanic, allegedly a butcher, and a second-hand shop called Aladdin's Cave, diagonally opposite me, that opens when the owner can remember the password. There are various buildings undergoing renovation, a town hall, a pub, a rectory, a church, this bank. There's a disused railway station, an operating train line that carries coal past the bottom of my garden at 5.30am. It lets out this beautiful French horn-style hoot, because rally, railway crossings don't have barriers, they just have advisory notices. There's a bunch of llamas. I'm not sure what the possessive term is, maybe herd. A family of wild peacocks, uh, a disused football ground with a mournful scorecard, scoreboard, a beautifully manicured golf course that is virtually free to use, and a clubhouse that serves as a local pub on Friday nights. The thing about small towns is that characters have space to breathe. You can be your own archetype without fear that someone's going to invade your space. There's the usual mix of, I guess, joys and resentments, but they're um, very clear to see. When I first got here, I'd, I'd meet people in the street and everybody I met for the first time said, I hear you have big plans. Uh, so let's call this Tasmanian Whispers. It reminded me of Escape from New York, that classic John Carpenter movie in which um, Snake Plissken is dropped into Manhattan, which is now a maximum security prison, to rescue the president who has crash-landed there. And everybody he meets says, Snake Plissken, I heard you were dead. Of course, there are tools to correct or massage the truth. For instance, there's a local who has an incredibly loud voice. He could warn ships off rocks and has a habit of repeating exactly what you've just said to him. There are no secrets in this town. Well, as far as I can tell so far. This isn't a wealthy area. Quite a lot of people live hand to mouth, especially in the outlying communities in the foothills built around old mine shafts. I hear that some young families don't even have electricity. I can't imagine that. That's probably enough to be going on with. Um, I'm going to buy a better microphone and I'm going to try and make it not sound like there are certain things that I read which sounded like I've, I've taken a big suck of helium. And I'll add a bit more structure and a bit more variety and probably 
get rid of some of the annoying background music for some of the bits. Having just listened through it, uh, it sounds a bit like some kind of ASMR lounge type specialist go to sleep thing, which I'm anxious to avoid. Anyway, that's it for episode one. Um, Let's see where we go from here. If you have any feedback, I'm on Twitter at Hamish M. Thompson. And I think maybe there's some kind of messaging thing that's attached to this. This is the first time I've done it. So I am really making it up as I go along. But that's my life at the moment. Okay, speak to you next time.